Hello and welcome to another Millsurf HQ podcast. I'm Tom, and as always, I'm joined by my main man, Kelly. Howdy. Howdy, everyone. So today, we're going to get into something a little different again, as we won't be talking about any one specific firearm, but instead, we'll end up discussing a whole bunch of them throughout the podcast, because today's exciting show is filled with some fun stuff, some sad stuff, some good stuff, some bad stuff. That's right, we'll tap into every Millsurp emotion as we take a dive into Millsurp mishaps, mistakes, and misfortune. And that's not all, is it, Kelly? No, it is not. Today we also have a special guest. I'm sure many of you all already know his name and have seen his videos. We are joined by Readiness Reviews. What's up, guys? I'm honored to be on the show. All right. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. We had a question. Your readiness reviews. What exactly does the name mean? Well, it's kind of readiness. Uh, so I didn't really know what I was doing with my channel when I first made it. It was sort of a, an amalgamation of things that I was into. It was had some military ration stuff, which involved like, you know, prepping and food storage, that kind of thing. And then I was maybe going to do some things with modern firearms. Of course, I've always loved Millsurp, so I was going to make videos on that. And I kind of narrowed the focus over the years down to what the channel is now, but the name kind of just hung around. Yep, that's that seems to be the story for a lot of people too. You picked it once and that was it, it stuck forever. And so I got in on a Mosin. That was my first uh gateway drug gun. I was just curious what yours is or was. So the the first firearm that I purchased myself as far as meal server goes was a Mosin, and that was in like 2008. As soon as I turned 18 years old, pretty much, and were you know, was even legally able to purchase a firearm. I uh, bought my first Mosin. It was a uh, M44 carbine made in Romania. And then shortly after that, I bought a 9130. Nice. That's a good starting one, M44. And it looks like you got into Mosins then right away. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I was in high school still and, you know, I didn't have a ton of money and Mosins were super cheap. They were the cheapest thing on the market, basically. <laughs> yep. uh, and uh, it's what we could afford. Me and my buddies in high school, I had a group of maybe five friends and all of us bought a Mosin like all around the same time, like $100 Mosins right at the end of the you know, 2000s, basically. We were looking at our collections today, actually, and we have rifles from all over the place. There's no pattern, really. Just we started off with something and now we're everywhere. What's, what do you think your pattern is? I mean, I could see it from your channel, I think. So I buy what whatever is cheap and available at the moment. So the past <laughs> couple of years has been predominantly Carcanos and Enfields because that is what is available on the market. Um, if I would, if I would have been doing my you know YouTube channel back 10 years ago, it probably would be slam pack with Mosins, but, but, uh, I basically do, yeah. uh, you know, what's available in my broad collection. I would consider myself a pattern collector, but patterns broadly. So my original idea when I started collecting firearms is I wanted like one firearm, at least one from every country that participated in world war one and world war two. Um, there you go. and over time, it's that's really an unattainable goal. I always knew that it was like I'll never have one firearm from every. At that point, it'd be almost every country in the world, you know. If you're like to put those two conflicts <laughs> yeah. together, um, so I don't really care so much well, about you, getting. You little, work your way there. You do your primary countries, and then the secondary, and then. 
Yeah, you, you do. It's uh, I still consider it, you know, it's a lifelong thing. So we'll see what it's looking like, you know, 30 years from now. If we can still buy firearms in this country. We'll see. But um, yeah, I mean, I have uh, collected a little of this and a little of that. And uh, I have really have like narrowed my focus to uh, smokeless powder, centerfire, military arms, uh, mostly World War One and World War II. Um, rifles predominantly is what my collection is. Nice. Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. I just want one of each country from World War One, mostly, and then some World War Two. You know, but then you see one video or one something short that makes you want a black powder <laughs> trapdoor or something, and then it's you're onto something else. Well, yeah, specific. I definitely want a black powder trapdoor specifically. <laughs> and uh, the past couple of years, I have definitely uh, been easing my stance on centerfire smokeless. I've been kind of looking at centerfire black powder also. Um, at the moment, I only have a Graw that fits into that like category, but there's definitely some firearms in there that interest me. I want to get my hands on a martini. I definitely want to get a trap door. You know, the, the, the big players from that like late 1800s era that was centerfire black powder, I kind of want to start picking those up too. And those guns are like works of art. They're, they're lots of pieces you know, like a Beaumont Vitale. You see those bolts, and it's, they're amazing. Yeah, some of those guns are super steampunk-looking and cool and yeah. interesting, and they're all, you know, unique mechanisms and stuff. They're really neat. So of those, do you have any, like, particular favorites that you've gotten so far? Well, as far as acquired, I only have a Gras that fits into that category. That's that's all I have. I have the a Gras carbine, a cavalry carbine. But... Uh, the number one on my list to actually like get from that group would be uh, a martini. I really want a martini. And then right behind that would be uh, your Trapdoor Springfield. I absolutely need one of those. Does it matter the martini if it's in 303 or? So uh, <laughs> for, for my greater collection, I'd rather have a 303 one. But, you know, at that point, it's kind of a different gun. And I consider that I more of a World War One firearm. But uh I would actually rather have one of those than a black powder one just because I had plenty of 303 and I love 303. Uh, but I, w- I wouldn't mind having an old, you know, Snyder either. Yeah. But I, I, I want the old Snyder, but that 303 is a, is appealing. Yeah. Makes it much easier to shoot. Which, speaking of, do you do you shoot everything you get or are you one of those that's okay with having a few wall hangers here and there? So I buy some crap guns like things in really bad condition <laughs> that are that are project guns i've seen some yeah <laughs> and and so you know a lot of things i get are not even shooters out of the box i think they need some work parts replacement stuff like that to even get them to the range but the the ultimate goal is for everything to be a shooter if it can be some things are you know beyond fixing but for the most part i, I want every firearm in my collection to be a shooter i don't have no interest and super collector grade stuff that you know you need gloves to touch and you would never take it to the range because it's going to devalue it like i i want my hands on want to be able to pull the trigger and put lead through everything i have yep you know i'm the same way even if i'm if it's a rare caliber and i know i'm probably never going to shoot it that it can be fired is an important thing yep and um you you uh rolled the dice a lot uh on some of your rti and hunter's lodge and all these different <laughs> things um we wanted to know if you you enjoy gambling because you seem to gamble a lot on i i made a list here hunter's lodge rti dk firearms j and g sales century arms Edelweiss, 
classic and Bud's gunshot. You tried them all. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the goal. I, I kind of wanted uh, my channel to be the I'm not an, an expert in any one firearm. Uh, so I'm more of an expert on the market in general. And I think part of that is to uh, use everybody that's available. So I kind of want to order something from everyone just to see, you know, what the different experiences are like. And of course, each you know vendor has different things they offer. And since I'm trying to collect everything, I kind of, you know, dig in, in all the different pots. But I definitely go to the firearms casino on a regular basis. If we're talking about dice rolling now in my everyday life, I'm not a gambler. I'm very risk adverse, actually. And I uh, I kick myself because I didn't you know buy Bitcoin in 2010, things like that, because <laughs> yeah. I'm risk adverse. But uh, with uh, with guns, you know, I, I feel like I have aptitude to to correct most problems I run into. And as long as it's cheap, I don't mind, you know, rolling the dice on it. All right. I think we uh, know you a lot better now. And it's time to get to some mishaps. Let's do it. So I should say I define mishaps as any unlucky accidents, and that can include simply denting the wood or overcharging your round and blowing your gun apart. You know, they're both mishaps, although one is far worse. So before we get into the very specific uh, mishaps, the ones we had, I wanted to run down a list of some of the common ones that I've had that I thought everyone had, but maybe it's just me thinking that everyone did. So I'm going to ask you guys, you just have to tell me if you uh, have had these ones here, okay? So. I'll start with a small one here. Sometimes I'm too lazy to get the right screwdriver and I've used the wrong screwdriver and actually maybe it's too small or it was not a gunsmith, you know, screwdriver and it's actually damaged the screw and I feel embarrassed by that. Anyone else ever do that? Yeah, man, I definitely have tried to avoid that, but it's happened, especially in the early days, like before I had proper equipment and I was just like, you know, doing what I could with what I had. But uh, yeah, I've, I've messed up a screw here and there. Yeah, same here, especially like like you said, back in when I was a younger collector and all I had was a Harbor Freight screwdriver. I'm like, oh, that's fine. I don't need gunsmithing. That's 80 bucks could be a Mosin right there. But I, I learned better after a while and got some of those nice like Wheeler engineering screwdrivers. Right. I got to say, too, yeah, I learned also and I, I don't like doing the same mistakes, you know, twice. It makes me feel really bad. So <laughs> once is enough. We're going to move on up now to my next mishap. Have you ever slipped with the screwdriver and scratched or gouged a piece of, of the gun? Uh, yes, but nothing too major. It's a little minor scratches here or there. I have plenty that I've had on camera that I've like edited out. Me, me slipping out of the slot on, you know, giving, getting a little ding or din in the, uh, in the stock. But, you know, most of my firearms I'm working on are pretty trash anyway. So no, no big loss. <laughs> I can't tell that it really happened. Yeah, some people, though, get really bothered by that. Like, when I was looking things up, some people were like, I, I accidentally scratched it, now I want to sell it. <laughs> no, I don't care. The scratches are just all part of the story. Yeah, I don't have any museum pieces, but, yeah, I put a I put a scratch or two in some of mine. So we've damaged some screws. We've scratched some guns. This mishap causes no damage at all, but it just damages my ego. Have you ever tried to load a Mosin using stripper clips in front of someone you're, like, teaching? or that you're trying to impress, or it's someone you just don't want to look like an amateur in front of, and you have trouble with it, and... <laughs> All right, so... 20 seconds. If you're trying to load a Mosin with stripper clips, you're always going to run into problems, first off. 
<laughs> most of the stripper clips, are, for the most part, are complete garbage, especially if you're getting like modern reproductions. Some of the old original stuff works a little bit better, but that ammo is not the smoothest feeding ammo, and those clips are just trash anyway. So yeah, I've I've looked plenty stupid trying to use several different kinds of stripper clips in the past, not just Mosin's. I've looked dumb with infield clips. I've cut myself on a VZ52 clip because they're like really sharp. I sliced my my thumb open. Uh, all kinds of things have happened with stripper clips. Did you ever push one into the action, like into the magazine? Oh yeah, done that. <laughs> yeah, it's happened. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, and the Mosin ones are just especially hard. You're right, you have to lift around and do it a special way, and it's they always give me trouble. All right, the next one here. This one is, I'm not only ruining my Millsurp with scratches and, and gouges, I'm also ruining my house, because the next uh, mishap is, have you ever mounted a bayonet and accidentally poked something like a ceiling or a wall? I've done it three times. My room that I film my videos in, the wall, like, next to where I film at is destroyed for me. Poking it with bayonets <laughs> and front sights and, you know, cleaning rods is splattered with cosmoline all over. Like, it is it is terrible. I have I have really screwed up the room that I film in. Whenever I get ready to sell my house and move out, I'm going to have to, like, do some serious renovations in that room. So, yeah, I've, I've tore the house up messing with guns for sure. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I've put, a, I've put a bayonet into a ceiling fan once or twice. <laughs> Once or twice, uh, my uh, like chandelier in my kitchen, it actually part of it's broke right now. Where I was, you know, picked up a firearm and the barrel hit it and cracked it. Oh my god! Okay, this final one is a very sad one because I hate this the most. Um, dropping. So I've had a situation where my guns all dropped once, and I wasn't even there. <laughs> where I had a wobbly gun rack. But I was very careful with it, and I know I had to put some support beams into it, and I didn't get to do it yet. And I came home from work one day, and my guns were all askew and in the wrong spots and sideways, and I knew something was up. And my wife, you know, after some detective work, my wife said she was bringing in the laundry basket through the room and banged into them. So when I asked how many fell, she said, I don't know. So... That led to moving the laundry to another part of the house. <laughs> <laughs> so has anyone ever damaged a gun or a milsurp of yours? And it wasn't you. I've never seriously dropped anything that, that's done real damage to it. Um, I've had firearms. That I've had like, you know, maybe propped up on a wall slide and hit the corner or something simple like that, but nothing that's done like visible damage. I've had, Two. One, I had a gun resting on the shooting table and my friend bumped it and it fell it fell off the table and it landed on the butt stock or like right on the butt plate. So it didn't actually like hurt anything. No cracks or anything, just put a scratch on the metal butt plate, which I guess that's what it's for. <laughs> and then the one that really hurt was I had my Garand over my shoulder and I was walking with it and it was over concrete because I was at my I was like in the driveway of my buddy's ranch. And the screw for the sling swivel, the front sling swivel, came undone. So the the tip just, like, fell all the way down in, like, an arc. And, like, right on the muzzle, it smacked into the concrete from, like, four feet up, five feet up. So I put a pretty good ding, like, right on the tip of the muzzle. It didn't affect the crown or anything, so it still shoots fine, but... Well, when I heard that I, and like felt it, I immediately like <laughs> picked it up, tried to make sure it was okay, and there's a big old ding right in there. That that one sucked. 
So yeah, I locked. I locked out for the, a while. I locked out of the shit out of that screw after that. <laughs> well, we're talking about drops here. So one of my personal mishaps was I was cleaning. We were talking about trap doors. I had a trap door leaning against my gun cleaning stand, and one of the other trap doors on the table. And they're big, giant guns. If you don't know, they're fifty plus inches and like baseball bats. And I picked it up and I pulled it in like almost like a reverse present arms. I pulled it in into the other one, which fell back into the gun rack behind it. And it fell in such a way like the matrix. It spun and fell on an angle and it clipped six, almost the seventh rifle, six rifles on the rack that four of them had a scratch from the, if you ever seen the front side of a trap door, it's very sharp. (laughs) So with one dumb move, I had four scratches on those guns. <laughs> wow, they couldn't have gotten any worse, could it? Oh, sad. So yeah, I I don't make those mistakes twice anymore. So I, I once that that's it. I don't I I nothing's leaning against my gun stand anymore. Everything's safe. Yeah, I've scratched my wall plenty of times by leaning a couple on the wall, then one kind of tips, and they all tip, and then there's like four front sight drags <laughs> on my on my wall on my paint. All right. So what about some? like uh, gun technical mishaps like I bought my Portuguese Regero and it has a very complicated bolt and the first thing I read about it when I was researching it was how complicated the bolt was and it's in every book and it's in every everyone mentions it and as soon as I took it out I twisted the bolt head and it decocked the action of the (laughs) bolt so that was you know a couple of hours of finding the right way to do it and it's one of those you need three hands to get it you know recocked yeah, um, M95, Malinker uh, M95s have a, a tricky bolt. If you, uh, one of the carbines that I have likes to, you know, decock itself pretty much every time you pull it out of the firearm. And uh, there's a little yep. trick to use a, a dime to sort of use as a spacer while you're clicking it back into position. But if you try like re you know, straightening up that bolt just like barehanded by yourself, it's really tough. Um, yeah, it's a hand killer. Uh, infields, so the spring that is both the, the sear spring and the magazine release, getting that thing in and out, like I figured out a good way to do it, but like the first time I had to do one of those, I probably spent like two or three hours just trying to like get that spring back in there and hold and like lock into place. And now I kind of hold it in there. I put the other parts in first. I don't know. It's like this is a whole sandwich thing I do now that's a lot easier, but uh, figuring that out initially was really tough. Yeah, and without YouTube sometimes, I would think that it would almost be impossible <laughs> to do some of the things that I've had to fix or whatever, you know? So I really appreciate it. Like when my, um, I have a German M7184 and it has the magazine cut off, but you can only switch it when the bolt, when the, when the elevator is up and it's opened, I think, but I did it when it was closed. And thank God for the video. The only way to, to redo it, fix it, is to take it apart. <laughs> Like underneath, you have to take off the floor and go from underneath. One that I struggled with in a long time, uh, not knowing what I was doing, was a uh, a Finn uh, M91 Mosin. The barrel bands are uh, apparently, you know, they they're was it counter screwed? They the they're threaded, they're reverse threaded basically. So instead of uh, and, right. yeah, they. And uh, trying to get those barrel bands, like the, for the first time, like I was like, why? Why is it not coming off? I'm putting so much pressure on it. You know, I'm going to break something. And, I, <laughs> and the whole time I was just tightening it tighter and tighter and tighter. <laughs> oh, that's annoying. Have there been any uh, mishaps 
you've heard from other people, not you guys, but that you saw maybe personally or heard, because I, I one I just heard yesterday was somebody dropped his rifle and that's it. Immediately zero is gone. So, so is that seems oh, to be I've a common that. one. I've had my I have a non permanent, don't crucify me, scope mount on my K thirty one. And it makes it very top right heavy. So if you aren't holding it, it likes to rotate upside down. So I set it like on my shooting rest and like I went to go do something and I I thought I got it stable. And this was just after I had sighted it in. It's been like 15 rounds to do that. And of course, something happened like a breeze blew in or something bumped a table. And so it just immediately rotates upside down. And the first thing it hits a table is a scope. (laughs) And of course, my zero was completely gone because it's not the strongest mount. So that was a whole waste of ammo. And I got to redo that zero. (laughs) I think uh, as far as mishaps go, shipping damage, I, I see from people all the time. I'm in most of the like surplus Facebook groups and stuff, and I keep an eye on those. And all the time people are posting pictures of, oh, you know, look what FedEx did to this rifle, you know, every, <laughs> broken guns everywhere. Um, I think that's really common. I've had uh, a firearm arrive from RTI with the, the sight broken on it. I'm the number one infield, excuse me, the number four infield that I purchased from them. Um, when I opened it up, I noticed that the, the rear sight, uh, the ring was broken off of the rear sight and the front handguard was cracked. And I got to look at the box and I'm like, that's a weird indention on the box. It kind of had a hole poking through the outside. And I I went to where that hole was and my sight ring that had broken off was in that slot. I was like, holy crap. You know, it's like they, uh, <laughs> they straight up, you know, dropped this rifle and it hit hard enough for the, for the sight to literally, you know, break off and wedge itself in the box. I think it broke the handguard too. Yep, shipping companies are not kind to packages. I used to work for one of the, the big names, and they don't care. They throw those things however hard they need to to get that stuff moved. <laughs> well, yeah, Danny from uh, Millsup World just posted his UPS duffel cut, he called it. It was snapped at the wrist. What kind of gun was it? A Chinese Mauser of some kind. Yeah, it was, a, I think, a Type 24. Ah. So, yeah. You know, you're not getting that. You can't replace that. Yeah, I remember uh, one specifically. It was a couple of years ago. Someone posted on Facebook. It was a pristine, like showroom quality Polish M44. They're like absolutely perfect, and the stock was straight, broke all the way in half at the wrist uh, from shipping damage. And the the dude was so mad. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah, that one was like like the most perfect M44. I've had nothing broken, but they lost the Gewehr 98 bolt. <laughs> so. I had to I had to get a replacement. It wasn't matching, thankfully, but there was a hole in the box just for the bolt that they wrapped separately, and it went right out that hole. Wow. So uh, yeah, I've I've had a rifle before that I thought the bolt wasn't in the box, but it was like taped to the outside of it. I think it made its way like outside, uh, and they just like you know taped it back to it. I don't know. It was weird. I, I I was very confused. Yeah, I was checking that box. I was checking every crevice. I I took pictures and sent it to them, and they said sorry, nothing we can do. We didn't find it. So. I was hoping it was in there, you know, like um, RTI. I bought a Vetterly at one of the flash sales and it came with a free clip and that was just in the paper in the bottom. Oh yeah. When I got my Carcano from DK, they sent a, a brass clip, but it was just loose in the box and it <laughs> you got crushed a couple of times. They didn't even include mine. I was supposed to, <laughs> I bought one at the same time where they were given the clips for the, with the guns and there was no clip in mine at all. That sucks. Um, I heard of uh, some guys shooting 7.7 out of blank firing 
Japanese training rifles in the past, but I don't think that happens anymore, does it? If 7-7 existed, it might happen every now and then. <laughs> that's, you know, that's probably it. They're just lucky they can't screw up because they can't find ammo. Right, a guy who's willing, who's able to find 7-7 knows what he's got. So, <laughs> Yeah, I've seen quite a few people put the wrong caliber. They're like, oh, 7-5 is 7-5, right? So they try and put 7-5 Swiss in a 7-5 French rifle or vice versa. Oh, or eight LaBelle into an eight by fifty Mannlicher, and that one didn't that didn't even chamber, so they got lucky there. <laughs> you know, I, and I'm such a big fan of Milserp history and and being a collector. I sometimes forget that they also shoot. So, uh, has anyone ever had or know someone that's had a mishap while shooting at the range, and you know, maybe an accidental discharge or some kind of dumb thing? Do uh, slam fires on SKSs count? <laughs> Yep. No, but I, those, it does count because you're never expecting it, right? Yeah. So the the very first SKS that we had in my family, I was I was still a kid. I mean, I might have been ten or something. I don't know. Uh, my uh, grandfather uh, bought it, and it was like you know slathered in cosmoline, and we cleaned it up the best we could. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing back then, and they weren't big Milsert dudes. They were you know they were just fire general firearms guys. Um, and so we cleaned up the outside and everything, but no one ever really thought to take that thing apart and clean it on the inside. And uh, SKS is, they have a floating firing pin. So there's any junk like around the firing pin, it will cause it to get stuck in the extended position and it will just like fire off strings of full auto fire. And it can actually, it can happen while you're in the middle of shooting or just, you know, dropping the the bolt on a round can cause a slam fire if it's oh, not wow. properly cleaned. It's very important with SKSs to make sure that they're well cleaned on the inside. Uh, once you clean it one time, you don't really have to worry about it again. But if there's cosmoline in there, it's a big like safety hazard. But and, uh, and a lot have cosmoline in there. Yep. Oh, well, yeah. After that SKS sat around for years and no one even shot it, we finally got it out to shoot it, and my uncle, you know, dropped the 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 action on the first round. And pulled the trigger and it like sprayed off like a seven round burst. Boom. And <laughs> we were like in a in a like covered area and it like you know blew everyone's eardrums out. We were totally not expecting it at all. And I was like, you know, shitting bricks basically. <laughs> um and <laughs> you know, I actually like I was I was super surprised, but being a kid, I was like, that's cool. I didn't know it was flawed. And like, you know, they were all <laughs> scared and stuff that you know they someone's gonna call the FBI and you know, holy crap. Uh, but, uh, you know, we kind of like shelved it and I came back to it a couple years later when I was still, you know, a, a teenager and I took it all the way down and cleaned it properly. And it's never been a problem ever since. Nice. I've had some bad luck with pistols. It seems like when I first got my Dryza 1907, I inspected and everything looks, looked all right, except the barrel, which I'll get to that. And then I took it to the range to shoot it and the magazine wouldn't seat right. So I'd like hold it with my pinky under it and I got six rounds through it and then the bolt head like just cracked into four separate pieces <laughs> so of course i'm the God. one one to break the 100 year old bolt head and they're known to do that but i, I didn't know that at the time i'm like oh it looks everything looks fine i didn't see any cracks anywhere or anything but i get six rounds through it and there goes the bolt head yeah i was gonna say aren't those guns prone to breaking like that anyway <laughs> yep so I, I didn't realize that and i actually did manage to find a replacement bolt head after like months and months of searching but i don't know if i'm going to shoot that one again and You're scared yeah i don't i don't want to, i don't want to break it again and then my other one i have a 1915 webley mark six mark five mark six yeah mark six and i 
got it ready for the range, took it out to shoot. I made some like low powered ammo because it's one of the shaved ones. And I got one cylinder through it, and then I open up the next cylinder, or I open up the the brake to put the next rounds in. I hear a little twang, and the top the latch spring broke right as I opened it, so I couldn't shoot anymore. And of course, I'm the one to break the like hundred and five year old <laughs> five year old spring. It's the original spring. It had the British marks on it, and it was completely fine up until right that moment. It's not Millsurp, but. Uh... A couple years ago, I was at the CMP in uh, Talladega, Alabama, the CMP Marksmanship Park, which is a fantastic gun range, by the way. But then also they have uh, they sell the CMP firearms there. So they have uh, M1 Garands and they have uh, 1903s and 1917s. And I was there like shopping. Um, while we were there, though, they had an incident on the range where someone put a 300 blackout in a 223 AR and blew their AR up on the on the, the range while we were there. That was kind of interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty easy to do. Yeah, it happens all the time. I've, I've seen one at a range. It wasn't me or anyone I'm shooting with, but. Well, I've been lucky at the range. I've had, you know, someone flag us and done stupid things like forget ammo and stuff, but nothing bad, thank God. Oh, and I also had a Savage 1907 little 32 pistol that had a worn sear and occasionally it'd give me a two or three round burst. I ended up selling that one. <laughs> it was pretty fun, but yeah, no, I'm good. All right. What about with ammunition? As far as anyone get any pop primers, uh, split cases, or any scary gas blowbacks or anything like that? I've definitely had my share of ammo that just sucks. You know, really brittle cases, like every round splitting, or of course, you know, you have ones that are are very click boom. Uh, you know, primers all weird. It's generally ammo from like the Middle Eastern part of the world seems to be really sketch some of it's good some of it's not i had this uh persian eight millimeter and it's literally like the worst ammo i've ever run into it's not doesn't seem to be dangerous like some of the turkish eight millimeter is that it like will literally just be like super hot loaded and stuff but this ammo just doesn't work and when it does work it doesn't the 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 cases are all chewed up and I, i don't know if it's the the brass is just old and brittle or metallurgy was weird or what but that ammo was terrible yeah you do reload I do not. All right. Yeah. With reloading, you get you get a lot more of those. So I reload most of my ammo. So I've had, I mean, I've had some split cases. I have had Pierce primers, and I haven't done anything catastrophic yet. I mean, everyone has their, their wall of shame where they have, like, the crushed cases or the misaligned bullets. I did have one backwards bullet that made it all the way to the range <laughs> before I caught it. And then, let's see, what was, what was the worst one? Oh, I've, I've only popped one primer in my press when putting it into the case and that was like a tight two to three round. And then I learned And that... no doubt you got scared. No doubt. Oh yeah. <laughs> there's there's a little pee after that one. That sounds very scary. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty loud. And then I've dropped like a live or a primed round into my drink and that killed that primer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess don't drink and reload. Did, and then Did you see that um video where the guy shot and the round Discharge round hit the round on the table. Was that what happened? Oh right? yeah, yeah. He like the casing hit the like the, the live round, and the rounds were just sitting in the box on the table, but they were like exposed, and like the primer just or, or the empty casing just perfectly hit the primer. Yeah, it's like one in a million chance. Man, I have had a slam fire with my FAL. Apparently, the firing pin has enough momentum 
if you close a bolt without a magazine, because a magazine provides a little resistance to it, that if you just like drop around in the chamber and then close the bolt, it'll it'll fire it. Luckily, it was just a prime case because I was like testing the fit. But yeah, that one, that one also scared the piss out of me. That's it's a floating firing pin on that. Yes, yeah, just like an AR SKS, but has a little more momentum than those two. So there's a this big mishap story going on with the Sig P320 handguns. They're just going off on their own. And Ian from Forgotten Weapons just did a video on it. And it's from the stories, it sounds like guys walking down the stairs and the guns in his holster and it shot him in the leg. And multiple people are saying similar stories. Yeah, I heard about that one. I, I remember the ones from where you like you could drop it on like the back of the slide and it would maybe go off. So does this if something like this, does this affect you, how you view the company? I was wondering, like, do you still see, you think it's an anomaly or, uh-oh, SIG better get their shit together. It sucks. Well, I mean, any firearms company can, you know, come out with a with a firearm that has a flaw. If anything, it, it, it's on the military for not figuring that out when they were testing it, you know? Like, I, I feel like all, yeah, right? I, I feel like mili- if military testing does anything, it's supposed to, work out all the kinks in any given system. And sometimes it takes a while, you know, usually gen one of any military firearm are pretty bad. And there's things that have to be changed. You, you, it gets fielded, you figure out what's wrong from service. And that might be what's happening now. I mean, uh, most firearms that have entered military service at some point have had iteration since they were in service. The funny thing is the army veteran is the is suing is the one suing. So they should have been tested. And now you got them suing the SIG. That was like a tongue twister, suing Sig Sauer. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that shouldn't have happened. I mean, there's been, Sig's had decades and decades of great guns, so they slipped a little on that one. Oh, the reason I brought that up, though, is I wanted to ask you about reloading. Um, Ian said one of the reasons might be double uh, double powdered, you know, double charged rounds. Is that something you've ever done? I luckily have not, because that will destroy your gun like guaranteed <laughs> especially like pistol powder like a lot of like a lot of the time like the case is like 20 percent full like you can get a double triple quadruple charge in some pistol case <laughs> and that's like a small atom bomb at that point rifle it's a lot harder to there i don't know of many rifles you could really double charge but yeah with pistol it, it'd be easy to do especially if you like don't have your process right i always do it where i drop my powder charge and immediately set a bullet on top and like seat that bullet. So there's no chance of it getting a double charge. Some people like charge, set it down, charge, set it down. If they pick up the wrong case and double charge it, eh, it could happen. Yeah. I don't like that. The method where you charge a whole bunch and then go back. You might miss. I don't like it. Yeah. Not the best idea. (laughs) What about that video from the, the Turkish charging method that's been going around? Oh, what is it? (laughs) <laughs> then basically just have the I don't know if it's real or not, but it's, oh, just, it's, 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 a, it's a short video that's been making its rounds. I think, um, uh, it's like the Kyber pass gunsmiths or something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. But basically the, the, all the cases are standing vertical and they're in some kind of receptacle that's holding them and they just pour powder over the top and just like brush it into the cases by hand. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I did see that. <laughs> they just fill it all the way up. That's how much you need. All of it. That's it. Full. <laughs> All right, so throughout history, some countries have had their own famous mishaps. And when we f- first started talking about this, I right away thought of France. 
because there's a few from France that are pretty funny and they actually affected the design of the firearm. So the first one is, a, I like to think of this as the story. These two drunk French soldiers were hanging out and someone made a joke and they said, hey, I wonder if we can put this, attach these two guns by their bayonet holes. <laughs> and they did. And then the problem is back then you could not release the bayonet unless it had the button that's on the bayonet, right? So the guns were then permanently stuck together. So these two guys stuck their guns together at the bayonet hole. I don't know if it's true, but this led to them changing it so that there's now a little hole that you could release it with some kind yeah, of... Yeah, I saw, Ian, saw Ian's video on that one. I'm like, oh yeah, soldiers would totally do that. If there but, is a flaw in a design, no matter how minor, a soldier will show it at some point like it will it will work its way out because these dudes are just sitting around and guys are going to do dumb stuff you know does this fit in that hole does that fit in that <laughs> hole you know that, that kind of thing you, you it's going to happen like if there's a problem it's there's some way that that can be done it will be done just from people <laughs> being bored yep like, right. with the, like on that similar vein with the original 75 french caliber it was originally 7.5 by like 58 or something like that and of course they would somehow find an eight millimeter round and oh look it fits and try and shoot it or something and kaboom now now your rifle's in pieces so that's how you ended up with 7.5 by 54 because they made it short enough to where you definitely can't chamber an eight mil yeah that was a bad idea having them both chamber <laughs> with those soldiers um the french also had an oh so the design change happened with the moss 36 where they changed the bayonet uh hole and release and added an extra way but then the other story I heard, I want to believe this is true too, is I heard it was two motorcycle guys, troops, you know, they're riding along in World War II and they get to their destination and they take their rifles off and the bolt firing pins are gone. And it was due to the fact that their safety knobs were round and they just, you know, they jostled on the ride and came unloose. And it, when you take off the safety cap, out goes the firing pin. So the late, the later mosses, I think it started before the end of the war though, right? They added the notch on the safety so that it will not come undone when you're on your motorcycle. <laughs> oh, like the retainer on the the back of the bolt cap? Yeah, whatever, whatever right. it's called. Huh, yeah, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing something about that, you know, that's the theory. I mean, it makes sense. You, know, you vibrate something enough, if, if it can't come apart, it will. Yeah. And they said these guys got in trouble for losing their firing pins. They also said, I don't know if that's true, but I don't know the French. Apparently the French were pretty strict about about the the firearms maintenance and like they didn't want conscripts messing with the guns. That's why they use like you know proprietary screws and stuff. They're using a lot of uh, right, right. like spanner bits and stuff like that. They didn't they didn't want the soldiers taking the guns apart and messing with them. So I, if if they're saying that you know they got in trouble for that, how I would believe it coming from the French. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the USA, I saw the mishap. That, I, that came to mind was the 1917 interchangeability issues. That's kind of a mishap where Winchester just went ahead and just started making 1917s early before they had the full plans. And Remington and Eddystone were, were interchangeable, but Winchester was not. And I call this a, a mishap or a misfortune or a mistake. Either one. The ramrod bayonet was such a failure. I, I tried to look for someone saying it was good throughout history, and I cannot find someone praising it. <laughs> It's a terrible idea. Why would you want a bayonet that's so long and flimsy and useless and stupid? I don't know. The whole thing was dumb. 
but it made it from the eight from the trap doors to the 1903 which amazed me um another mishap here is the germans and the 88 commission rifle i call it a mishap because they could have had a mauser <laughs> and, and they rushed ahead and went with that thing that frankenstein and then they had some barrel bursting issues too later on i think when they like changed the cartridge a little bit yeah that's i have one but i don't give it the credit i like the 88 not because it's good just something about it is cool to me i like the way it looks i guess uh, but yeah i mean that was a that was a troubled firearm from the jump i mean they were they were trying to play catch up real quick you know throw together a smokeless rifle as quickly as possible and they kind of just pick from designs here and there and hobble something together and whenever you hobble something together out of other things that already exist it usually turns out bad in the firearms world <laughs> yeah um, another big mishap here was the Italians and the Carcano Cavalry Carbines. The original latch would come loose and the bayonet would come flopping out when you're shooting. And it was a, I heard it was a nonstop thing. So much so that, that they were doing mid-war feel on the field, you know, upgrades to this latch. And then they ended up changing it again because it still kind of happened. <laughs> it was bad for a long time. You can change that latch as much as you want to. Those bayonets just suck in general. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a step little, above the ramrod. A little flimsy. That's it. Wait, uh, Kelly, you told me one about the Israeli troops that I found funny. Oh, I love this one. <laughs> so the Israeli troops, since they like have like the mandatory conscription, they're like they often rotate like in and out of civilian life. And so they're required to carry the rifles around just when they're like in the reserves or whatever. And they found that their troops were using the magazines of, like, either the FAL or the Galil rifle. They were using the magazines to open bottles. And they would bend the crap out of their feed lips doing that. And so they ended up either... They ended up adding a bottle opener into the design <laughs> of the Galil bipod. So if you buy, like, an original Galil that has, like, the original, like, style bipod, it has a bottle opener built into it, just so they wouldn't do that. I think the first place I ever heard of the Galil having the bottle opener was way back in the day on the History Channel, Tales of the Gun. I don't know if you guys remember that show or not. Oh, yeah. But I, I love that show. Um, and I think on the uh, the Israelis Weapons episode, they kind of demonstrated it. If I remember correctly, it's been a long time. Yeah, I just think that's hilarious. That is. See, they were doing something for the troops. All right, so I think that's it for some for the mishaps. And so whereas I define mishaps as unlucky accidents, mistakes are thinking or doing the wrong thing when you thought it was the right thing that's what i'm going with so it could be mistakes in thinking or information about a fact or a marking or something like that i've been guilty of all that before i got my good books of course so as an example here my first mistake that i made that i've now rectified of course was there was a mark i thought i knew everything about and that was the conversion mark on the monlickers I thought simply if it's an S, it was converted at Steyr, and if it was an H, it was a Budapest, and that was it. But I learned later on, maybe it was through Millsop World and Aaron, I think, that the fancy S font was the Bulgarian conversions. So I have stopped my misinformation, and I have not, <laughs> egg on my face. I got it now. So S is Steyr. The S with the fancy script is Bulgaria, and the H is still Budapest. In a, in a similar vein, the there's the whole Gavari 88 S mark debacle, where the S mark 
I used to think you're like, oh yeah, just eight mil Mauser, send it. Or whereas just it depends on like who made the barrel and like who converted it, whether it was just a throat conversion or was it a throat and lands and grooves conversion or was it a whole new right. barrel? You gotta like really marked. There's a Z also in there. Yeah, or like an NM for the Noya Metal. You gotta right. kind of study it a little bit to see what you actually have before you can just send some eight mil or whether it's a 318 or a 321 or a 323 board. So I thought for a while the 19 model 1917 only held five rounds. It was it was actually a while before I realized that I, I think I saw it. I just yeah, that was wrong. And I just thought it was five. I don't I guess because of the 1903 had five. I mean the stripper clips were five rounds, but that's because they're interchangeable with the three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm not gonna blame myself, but I, I have one now, so I could verify. It is six. <laughs> um, and and uh, and also on U.S. firearms, I thought there were no new made 1903 Springfields like in the same configuration. I thought there was just 03 A3s made for World War II, but I realized early on there were some regular ones. Remington. Yeah, they made a few at the start of the war. And one big one I learned was I thought for a while there were 1878 trap doors. Like the stamp was 1878, but there is no 1878 stamp for a trap door. That is the 1873. That is just the stamp is bad. Yeah, that's <laughs> it looks like an eight. Wow. Those trap, those trap doors are a whole rabbit hole themselves. Yeah, I'm super confused by those in general anyway. <laughs> Maybe we should do an episode on that so I can learn. And then uh, uh, I've made a lot of mistakes over the models of the Dutch Monlickers. Um, I I can't make heads or tail of number four bicycle, number three. It's old <laughs> I mean, style. That's that's their own fault for having such a diverse selection of carbines for everybody and their mother that wanted one. <laughs> oh, and I was looking online for some mistakes people were making, and I noticed a lot of people seem to imply that Finland made mosins completely the way they talk about them i think they're applying it was the receivers and all and as weird as it sounds if anyone doesn't know they made zero receivers they updated them enough to make them unique rifles but they're all russian receivers they got them in from all over the place i mean you know they have ones that were made in america they have some french ones that you'll see that you know fell into fin service but of course you know tons of russian but they never made a receiver of their own that's true and those have a lot of variations too, like with the sling uh, slots and the, you know, some have screws, different screws, brass, this. Yeah. Um, Ski trooper ones and the civil defense ones. And yeah, it's crazy. And then you have step barrel, non step barrel. Basically, they would get in a gun, you know, and if something needed to be fixed or replaced, they would fix it or replace it. But sometimes if it didn't, they wouldn't. And so there's so much variation in Finn Mosin's, it's its whole own universe of collecting. <laughs> yep. Oh, another thing I saw was this poor guy. He bought a long branch Enfield and some surplus World War II 303 ammo, shot the shit out of it, and left the gun for almost two weeks because he thought it was not corrosive and then found out it was corrosive. So it was almost two weeks, and he cleaned it up, and he's considering the gun ruined. <laughs> I've seen that with, like, the Chinese knockoff M1 carbine ammo because, like, no M1 carbine ammo was ever corrosive. Except for that Chinese knockoff stuff. Uh, and so you can't really tell because they like fake the head stamps and stuff. And so, yeah, that's a, bit, a few people. And then one time 
I actually had, I had some surplus 762 by 39. And like I, I brought like, what was it like 90 rounds of like non-corrosive stuff. And I was planning on just shooting that. My friend grabbed the clip of the corrosive stuff and I didn't notice. So I didn't clean the gun when I got home uh, and I came back to a slightly rusty bore and crown. I was not pleased with myself. So when I very first started collecting, I didn't know corrosive ammo like was a thing. Like that, I had never heard of that ever. Just being someone that liked firearms in general, and when you know, would just go to Walmart and buy ammo and shoot it. <laughs> and uh, you know, I got my first couple Mosins in, and we, me and my buddies, went to this local gun shop in town. And uh, the guy there sold me a bag from under the counter of 760 by 54R. He was like, here you go. It was super cheap. It was a hodgepodge of all kinds of stuff, Russian, Bulgarian, all kinds of crap. And we took it out and shot it. I never even right. knew, I never even knew that corrosive ammo existed. Um, and, you know, several weeks later, end up looking at the board. It's just a rusty, disgusting mess. And I, it, it, unfortunately, it happened on one of my Mosins and one of my buddy's Mosins until we like actually, you know, like did a little research and figured out like, this is a thing. And it's very important that you clean these after shooting or you will ruin your gun. With that said, even if you have a firearm that has a rusty dark bore because it was fired with a corrosive ammo and not cleaned properly, a lot of times those guns still shoot fine. You really have to take it to the range before you write it off completely. And cleaning can help a lot too. So are you a poor boiling water down the barrel guy? Yeah, I do actually. I, I, I uh, boil, well, I, I used to just boil it in a pot and use a funnel and pour it down it. Now I have an ele- electric kettle. So that makes things a little bit easier. It has like a, oh, you know, nice. a, a cute tip and I pour it down. But I, I do, I probably, um, I don't know, like a, a quart of boiling water uh, down the bore and then um, like run a patch. And then I'll actually do a, uh, a Windex patch. For whatever reason, I'm really not sure. I, I've heard mixed things on whether or not ammonia actually does anything. Water is really the big thing. You need to clean out the corrosive salts with water. Uh, um, uh, Windex is mostly water. It's water and ammonia. Um, yeah, I've been hearing a lot of Windex with this. Yeah, it, it, it certainly doesn't hurt. And it's something that I've just I've done. Uh, like It's just part of the process now. Whether you need to or not, I, I don't know. But I'm going to continue doing it because it's worked so far. Uh, you put a little bit of Windex in it. Uh, and then after that, um, you know, I'll, I'll actually, you know, run, uh, like an actual bore cleaner and then, you know, uh, ballast all, you know, I'll brush it, patch it, brush it, patch it, that kind of thing. Make sure you oil it b- before you store it, you know, just the general firearms maintenance stuff. But the main thing, the main thing about corrosive ammo specifically is that water. You definitely want to introduce hot water to the bore after shooting corrosive ammo. So are you doing anything at the place where you're shooting? Nope. It just comes home with me. I figure as long as it's done, you know, within the, you know, hours after you're done shooting, you're fine. I wouldn't let it sit around, especially being in Georgia. It's very humid here. Uh, things will rust super fast anyway. So yeah. in, the, in the summer, you know, I just want to get it clean as quickly as possible. But there's no problem, you know, waiting 8, 10, 12 hours. It doesn't really matter. As long as it's done in a reasonable time, you'll be all right. Don't let it sit around for a couple of days or a week or a couple of weeks. Yeah, you usually, usually try and do it the that evening or the day after or something like that. Yeah, I like to do it right away. But now I'm just lazy and I don't buy corrosive ammo. <laughs> That's where I'm at now. I, 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 the only thing that you'll see me shoot corrosive ammo in is the odd bolt gun here and there. Like if it has any <laughs> moving parts that need to be cleaned or if I'm having to get into gas tubes and stuff, I will only shoot non-corrosive in those. So anything that's semi-auto, non-corrosive only. If I have a bolt gun, you're only having to clean just the bore and 
So that's not that big of a deal. It's really easy and quick. Right. You don't want to be getting in there on some semi-auto. Yep. Cleaning every nook and cranny every time. All right. So another few mistakes I heard about were real dumb and could have easily been avoided by literally 30 seconds of Googling. So that brings us here to our next segment called Who Made the Dumber Purchase? So we have these two guys. Sometimes being lazy leads to mistakes, and the following two should not have these two mistakes should not have been made. So the question is, who made the dumber mistake? So here's the first guy, sad sack number one. He bought a Japanese training rifle by mistake, thinking it was a standard type 38. But if he did his research, he would have seen that the photo was showing two zeros in front of the serial number, which is an easy indication that it was a trainer. And also the ad literally said smooth bore. But the guy admitted he thought that was an adjective for real nice. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> he thought like a 70s uh, term. The bore's real smooth. So that's poor sap one. He had every indication that it was a trainer, but didn't realize. Sad sack here, number two, was excited about his new Enfield rifle. He got it on the cheap and asked on the forums about the meaning of the marks on his rifle, especially the DP on the stock and bolt. Mm. <laughs> He asked at one point if it meant the Philippines, <laughs> uh, but he learned quickly enough and was sad by the news that it was a drill purpose rifle used for training. So which of these two fellas made the dumber mistake? Mm. The DP one? Yeah, I'd have to say the DP because that's pretty, it's usually pretty damn obvious because there's like a big old thing and drilled in the side and the red paint and whatnot. Um, I'm actually... Uh... I'm 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 guy number one. So I bought <laughs> <laughs> Sad sack number one. I bought a a type thirty on Gunbroker, and you know I should have known better to like do some research on the markings and stuff. But I you know I know a type thirty when I see it. I was like, hey, that's a type thirty. I read the description. The description uh, not in in any spot does it mention that it's a trainer. Um, it had a description of the bore. It said the bore is dark with faint rifling. And I was like, that's all I needed to hear. I was like, this is just yeah. this is a type 30, you know? It's just like, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy it. So I bid on it, and I, I get it home, and I unbox it. And I was like, something's up with this. I looked down the bore, and I was like, what faint rifling? It's as smooth a bore as it could possibly be. Oh, no. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the bolt, and I was, I was like, yeah, this, this, is, this is not right. And so I finally, like, you know, look at the – look up the actual markings on it. And I was like, holy crap, this is a, this is a type 30 trainer. Now it turns out kind of cool. Cause there's only like 10,000 type thirties were converted to trainers. So it's pretty rare actually, but I wanted a type 30 that I could actually shoot. And I definitely didn't get that. Uh, yeah. That would, that would bother me. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, if it has rifling, that's good to go. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought. But I guess, you know, I, I should have did my due diligence and actually like studied the pictures of the auction and looked up the, the but markings that I didn't know, you know, then I should have done it. It's still hard. Japanese rifles are hard. You know, you can't type in the characters that you're looking at, you know, and Google. That's its own world. Japanese trainers. But yeah, I agree with you guys. The DP guy should have realized something was up. That's a common phrase. And but yeah, yeah I mean, it, if you actually inspected a DP rifle in person, you couldn't tell that like that wasn't right. Then, then you have bigger problems. I mean, you need to, <laughs> you, you need to reevaluate how you're looking at a firearm you're going to purchase because they are very obviously demilled. Like it's, it's not something you can just, you know, gloss over. All right. And speaking of dumb things here, I wanted to share a couple of dumb ad listing mistakes that I found this month alone. All right. 
So I'm talking about from the online auction sites, not the gun centric ones like gun broker or gun boards. They're usually pretty good with their listings. I mean, like uh, proxy bid or high bid or something like that. And a lot of these places that sell on there are like estate sale places that know zero about firearms. And they, they're within seconds from you read the description, you know that they, they don't know what they're talking about. They're probably used to selling dining room sets more than they are, you know, Belgian Mausers. So <laughs> they write the worst ads also. So here we go. This is just my top five from this month. Dumb ad listings. And tell me if you've seen these before. Number five, I saw multiple ads with Swiss rifles listed as Swedish rifles. Oh, yeah. I've, pro I've, I've probably messed up and just said those in reverse <laughs> just from being, you know, tongue-tied all the time anyway. But, yeah, that's a pretty uh, pretty important distinction to make when it's in written form. <laughs> or, they, or they get called Swiss Mausers. Oh, wait, that's on the list. That's oh. <laughs> number three. Because the number four is Japanese Type I rifles confuse a lot of people. And the ad for the one I purchased was rare Chinese Italian Navy rifle. I mean, that's close. <laughs> At least they got the Italian and the Navy part right. Do they just like, well, how do they assume it's Chinese? Like, what about that screams China? They must have saw the... The mum? No, there's not even a mum on there. There's nothing on there. There, there are very little <laughs> markings on there. I mean, yeah. you'll, you'll find one every now and then that'll have some kind of mark on the stock or something, but there's very little markings on that rifle. You know, that's one of my biggest complaints about that rifle. I like it, but I like the receiver with something on it. I'm sorry. It is the best Carcano, by the way, though. <laughs> True. The least Carcano Carcano is the best. <laughs> All right, number three. When in doubt, they make it a Mauser. I saw ads for both a Russian Mauser and a British Mauser this month. Any old gun is a Mauser or a Mosin. It, it used to always be a Spanish Mauser. Everything was a Spanish Mauser. Like <laughs> me, and, me and my buddy have a have an ongoing joke for a while there. It just seemed like when we were going to gun shows and local gun stores and stuff, just like you have all kinds of things labeled Spanish Mausers that are most definitely not Spanish Mausers. And it happens on even today on the Facebook group, someone will like, you know, post a picture. I got this gun from such and such. I, I don't know what it is. Can anyone help me out? You look in the comments, like some old FUD is calling it a Spanish Mauser. It's definitely <laughs> happening. Yeah, especially if the marks are, are, are removed. That's all. That's from the Spanish Civil War. Yep, it's Mauser. All right, number two, they can't spell and don't bother to try. I saw a German Mauser, a British Anfield, a Japanese Irasaka with an E. And Mosin Naga with Mosin with a Z, Mosin M O S E N, Mosin M O S S E N. These are all, <laughs> and Naga N A G A H. So these are like one second Google type. If you type it in Google, it'll tell you. Don't you mean Mosin Naga? But oh wait, there's one more here. My favorite actually. Multiple, at least three different auctions this month listed in Arasaka as having a broken or split stock. Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> that one is all the time. Good way to get something cheap. They're like, oh, somebody sees broken. They're just like, nope, not going to bother with it. I've actually used that for bargaining leverage before. Nice. What? Because it's broken. Yeah, I was like, I was like, I was like, look at it. I was like, the the stock is is, is split apart. You know, you should you know knock some money off for me. They did. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I see the misspellings all the time. The mouser, the M O S E N, or the I've seen Enfeld. Enfeld. You know, it's a blessing in disguise though because. I, I've purchased a few rifles that were labeled wrong. I had the that Type I, I said, and then I had a Swedish Mauser that was a Swiss, just like I said, but it was reverse, I guess. 
So when they don't know what they're talking about and they spell it wrong, that that's not in everybody's searches. So if oh, you yeah. see it, then you haven't, you know. Sometimes I'll search those on purpose. It's a real, like a mouser. My buddy's uh, Type 53 was a uh, Spanish mouser uh, chambered in 308. <laughs> I got 0% correct. <laughs> oh, I've seen a label called the label. Probably autocorrect on that one. All right. So now we're going to move over to is it a mistake? I'm going to read you a couple of scenarios here. You just say yes or no and whatever you want to say. If it's a mistake, just we'll tell the community here what we think here about this. All right. So number one here, is it a mistake to dry fire your handguns or rifles, including centerfire and rimfire and old rifles, new rifles? Mm, it depends on the design. Some designs like to break firing pins when dry firing. Some designs are perfectly fine to dry fire. In general, it is a mistake, but it's also something that I will usually do on any given firearm at least once or twice uh, when I first get them, especially to make sure that they you know function properly. <laughs> but uh, right. with with no firearm, even ones that it's not a problem with, I don't recommend doing it all the time. I think that's you know pretty universal that people you know agree that you shouldn't dry fire firearms often because it's not really good for them. Now, some guns, it doesn't matter at all, but some it matters Believe it or not, there's people that are 100% I dry fire no matter what when I looked it up. I dry fire the piss out of my new guns because like dry fire practice helps a lot with trigger pull. Like I, I keep a pistol at my desk that I can just dry fire practice throughout the day. It's probably been dry fired a thousand times. Yeah, well, something like a Glock is designed to be dry fired. I mean, you literally have to do it to take the thing apart, so it's no yeah. big deal. But old guns, I I don't do it a lot. I'll do it here and there if I know, like, the gun's fine to do it. Like, say, a Coke or whatever, something like that. It's fine. And especially if you can easily find replacement parts for it. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go dry fire some right. like rarer guns because if you if you break it, then you're just kind of sol. If I can easily decock it, I will, rather than <laughs> pressing the trigger. Yeah. All right. Is it a mistake to refinish a non-cracked? Millsurp M95 Monlicker Stutzen stock if it has already been refinished at some point. Any problem with that? How, how are you refinishing it? Are you bringing it back to the way it should have been done originally, or are you slicking this thing up and making it look high speed? I think I think it depends on what <laughs> it depends on what you're on what you're planning. No, now, if you're original, if you're, if you're doing, and all that, if you're that's a good thing. You are doing the Lord's work if you're doing that. So go for it. Yeah, and it, I guess it depends. Refinished by who? Was it refinished by? Joe Bob, when he had it in the <laughs> True. 70s and he was hunting deer with it, or was it refinished by an armor or something like that? Well, some folks, when I was looking it up, said if it's never been touched before, I know I don't touch it, but if it's already been refinished, I will. So that's why I worded it as such. Yep, I agree with that 100%. If someone's already messed with it and it wasn't like an arsenal refinishing, then, you know, go for it as long as you're, you know, not making it worse. Yep, I'd agree with that. So are you a fan of when they take an SKS and make a bullpup crazy thing? If you're, just, if you're just doing it for fun and you're keeping your, you know, you can always put it back in the normal stock. It, it, in that case, you know, you're not making any modifications to the gun. It, you can always put it back the way that it was. So if you want to buy your SKS and throw it in some crazy bullpup <laughs> chassis and have fun with it, go for it. But, you know, when you're done, put it back in its regular military configuration and let it live the life it should live. Yep. Amen. Yeah, as long as it's not permanent. Like my K31 scope mount. Clamps on. Not permanent. <laughs> Good. 
I've posted that before, and people are like, what did you do? I'm like, no, no, <laughs> calm down, calm down. Okay, is it a mistake to shoot modern commercial 30-06, not ones that specifically say M1 Garand or Garand, if you plan on shooting just like one box a year? It's uh, it an depend, actual question. Depends on the ammo. So the generally accepted device, advice, not device, that is not spouted by FUDs at least, is if it's like 175 grain or lower, you're probably fine. No one's out there making hella spicy 30-06 ammo in those grains. Anything above that, you're pushing the pushing the limit. Because like the M1 grain match ammo, is, I think is 168 grain. So that's like made for it. So you can shoot heavier than the 147 or 150 that everyone always talks about. I think 175 is really the limit where the, the pressure on the op rod is getting into a little sketchy territory. If you're shooting a box a year, I don't think it really matters. To be completely honest, um, of course. I mean, if you do bend your op rod, you can just buy another op rod. Yeah, they're like one hundred and fifty dollars, <laughs> so it's not the biggest problem in the world anyway. But you're not if you're only shooting a box a year, and it's factory loaded ammo. The odds of doing anything negative to the rifle are like negligible anyway. Um, now, if you're shooting like you know high speed hand loads or something, and you're shooting like you know two twenty grains, super hot loaded and stuff, and that's just dumb anyway. You're just you're asking for issues at that point. But if it's a if it's a box a year, first off, you're not shooting your grand enough. You get out there and have fun with that <laughs> rifle. True. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, twenty rounds a year is not gonna not gonna hurt the op rod, even if you are you know shooting hot hotly loaded like one seventy fives. Yeah, I, I try to think like oh, it's only twenty shots. How much damage can you do? <laughs> I don't know though. I get yeah, nervous. Just all depends on how worn that piece is, or just how it was manufactured originally. It's just dumb luck at that point. And uh, but yeah, it's more than likely fine. Uh, I will side note though. I, I don't I don't shoot anything bigger than one fifty in mine. I've loaded up some one sixty eights for mine, but that's as heavy as I've gone. Okay, is it a mistake to shoot 8mm Mauser out of a Gewehr 8805 before slugging the bore? This came from a former guy who was getting yelled at for not slugging his bore. Mm, yeah, kind of. I, mean, I mean, if it's obviously not S-marked or converted or anything like that, then yeah. It all comes down to whether or not it has that S. So even then, you know, it's squirrely. Like, <laughs> uh, but gen- generally, if one has an S on it, I'm risky enough, you know, to it, it throw a regular eight mil in there and send it on the bar. Yeah. Yeah, for mine, I didn't slug it, but I I made some hand loads of like they were super light loaded, and it was a a lead bullet. That's it was originally meant for like thirty two forty or something like that. It was like a two hundred grain three two one, I think. And I shot that and got terrible accuracy. Then I did like a similar load with some three two threes and got great accuracy. But it was super downloaded from hotter eight mil. So I didn't slug it, but I tested two different sized bullets and got, found my answer. Got from point A to point B somehow. So yep. te- technically, that one is a mistake, but who cares? Right. Technically, it is, but okay. Is it a mistake to reblue a wire wheeled RTI Monlicker eighty eight ninety five? Or similar. I mean, if they wired wheeled it, it's kind of screwed already. I don't know why they do that. Yeah, that that's one of the biggest. Uh, I don't know. Is that one a, mis- a mishap, a mistake, or a misfortune? But the whole like <laughs> Ethiopian wire wheeling thing is is a is a biggest problem anyway. 
I, th- I think yep. that, that those RTI guns are going to go down as having their own little like niche in history anyway. I mean, they're not going to last forever. Eventually, all those Ethiopian firearms are going to be sold. And, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, people are going to look back and say, you know, hey, that was an RTI gun. And they're going to be easily discernible because, you know, of course, they'll be stamped IO Inc. But they'll also you know, <laughs> be, be wire-wheeled or have any other, other weird things about them that make them their own, like, little individual thing. And so, uh, in general, I would say that rebluing those is probably a mistake. Um, but if someone did it, I wouldn't fault them, especially if it's like you know a real, a real bad one. Yeah, I would say it's not really a mistake if they've been wire wheeled and the finish is all scratched up and ruined anyway. It's not going to match the rest of the gun though. Like if it, if you have like this right. pristine, like brand new blue, <laughs> and then like yeah. the, the the rest of the gun is all like worn down. Like have you seen some of the 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 stocks and handguards that just like have so much wear that you're literally just like it's like they were sanded but they weren't. You can just know it's people's hands on these guns for a hundred years in Africa, you know? Yep, that's true. It won't really match. But I have seen some reblowings where I don't know what they did. I don't know if it was like either they intentionally did the shitty cold blue job or just did like a really light rust bluing to where it looks like worn bluing, but it, when they redid it, it comes out kind of all right, but generally don't re-blue guns. Yeah, and I agree that they stand out. You could spot a, a RTI gun now mile away. So is it RTI doing that, or was it the Ethiopian like armorers doing that? So RTI's official story on it is that it was they were doing it uh, on the Ethiopian side, and... Uh, now they have a you know, directive from RTI not to do that. So I think that it was being done before importation, but it was like recently. It's not something that was done way in the past. And right, that's the craziest part. That's the, yeah, I okay. thought it was years ago. No, nah, well, you know, I, I still don't know exactly, but that's that's my understanding of it, is that it's something that RTI has told them to stop doing. So that means they were like actively doing it. Then I wonder if you're like, hey, get the dirt off these. I'm like, okay, I'll take, I'll use this wire wheel to get the dirt off. <laughs> Terrible idea. Okay, this is another one uh, kind of related to RTI. Is it a mistake to buy from online retailers without seeing any actual photo of the firearm at all before you purchase? That's what it's all about sometimes. I guess it depends on the price. It all depends yep. on the price. Have you received anything from them? that was uh, a mistake that was that was not what you ordered or something like that? Like, have you dealt with their customer service? I've dealt with the customer service a couple times. So um, I ordered a P64, a Polish P64 from them. Um, and I ordered that and another gun at the same time. And they only shipped me one of them. And I called them. I was like, I was like, Hey, what's up? You know, I only got one of the two guns that I ordered in this order. And uh, it's, they're like, you know, hold on, we'll have to look into it. We'll call you back. And they, they call me back. It was like a, you know, I don't even think they called me back. I think I had to call them back. This has been like two years ago. So uh, my memory's not the best on it. But I think I, I gave it another couple of days and I called them back again. And I was like, hey, you know, I called in a couple of days ago. Their, their customer service used to be like really hard to get a hold of. And I don't know if they still are. It's been a while since I've had to like deal with them on customer service. But um, in the early days, it was really rough. But they... We're like, oh, sorry, we were we ran out of those, and I was like, well, why didn't you like, you know, tell me like before before <laughs> before shipping the other firearm? Doesn't it seem like that you would have like let me know that half my order wasn't available? And uh, they ended up, you know, giving me a refund on that. They had charged me for the full amount for the order, and it was like on my card, but <laughs> you know, they, they they eventually refunded that. Um, so that was a that was a mishap on their side, I guess. <laughs> Sell me a firearm that they didn't have. Um, so you've tried all these sites, you've tried uh, all these online guys that. Does 
anyone stand out as like the best if, if someone wanted a recommendation or they're all the same at this point the best is also the hardest order from and in my opinion that's empire arms i think that they they do a really good job of giving yeah. you of first off offering quality stuff if it goes on if it goes on their newsletter it's generally a correct a collector grade firearm it's not just junk you get pictures of the exact firearm you're buying you get a good description written by knowledgeable people on the firearm you're buying. Yep. The prices are reasonable and their shipping speeds are excellent and they pack it well. Just everything that can be done is good from Empire Arms. The only problem is actually buying from them is a <laughs> race. It's a, it's a race and a crapshoot on, you know, whether or not you can beat the next guy to getting the yep. email in first. That's the only bad part. I've missed by seconds many times. He told me so. You have to be ready to go and have your email ready and written already. I have yeah. one. I have I have an Empire Arms draft. It's yeah. always ready. <laughs> it's always ready to go. I think I've missed uh, four or five. Um, yeah, M thirty nine. I finished M thirty nines. Like I've, uh. I've been having really bad luck with them. That's that's one of the main guns I've been like hunting for my collection. I want one, and it's been a while yeah. since I've tried to get one because now they're like creeping up into the price range where I think they're kind of unaffordable. But when they were like you know six hundred or sub six hundred, I was like, trying to get them all the time, and I would always lose. Yeah, and now you see what they are now, right? They're almost a thousand, or yep. maybe they are a thousand. It's crazy. All right, let's end it on a positive here. Did did you ever get order something and then you received it and it was better than what you thought? Maybe it was a rare one, or it was just a B grade, but it was like an A grade. I'm trying to think if I did now. So the the M38 Carcano that I got from RTI is both absolutely horrific and terrible. And really cool at the same time. So it's a it's an M38 Carcano, and the rifle I received has been wire weld. The stock is in terrible condition, very worn down. It doesn't have any like major cracks or anything, but the bore is a complete you know sewer pipe. It, it's there are there's no rifling left. You could probably take a uh, you know a 308 round and just drop it straight down the bore. Like if you held a loose <laughs> round over, like there's nothing there. It's never going to be worth anything. It needs to be rebarreled. Um, but it is a, a very, well, it, no, I wouldn't say very. It is a rare early model of M38 that has the original handguard that had wood on top that, that went all the way to the barrel band, um, as opposed to the, the later model that the handguard was kind of cut back some. Um, though you very rarely run into those, I think all the ones that stayed in Italian service for the most part were updated so i don't know if this one like you know made its way down to africa before that update happened or something you know you don't never really know exactly what happened with a gun like that it's sort of been around the world but somehow it, it was never updated and it has the original handguard configuration and they are extremely rare to find i, I don't know of anyone else that has one um, you know of course there are people that do but uh, mine's the only one that i know of uh, I, i'm pretty sure it was it, i saw that mentioned in the book i'm i was reading and it was so rare that they were kind of like just saying like a few in the beginning were with a long handguard and but so sounds like if a thousand or you know very low thousands if anything. Yep, I mean uh, apparently it was like more like a, a trials thing. It wasn't really a production gun, really. It was like an early, you know, like an early trial run kind of thing. All right, that's cool, Kelly. What about you? You get anything? A bonus? Anything? Better than expected. Yeah. So that would be my CMP 1911. Ooh. Oh. I ordered a rack grade, which is the lowest grade, so cheapest price. And the one I got is absolutely gorgeous. It could have easily been a service grade. 
It's a 1943 Remington Rand slide and frame that has not been. It had one refurb, but it doesn't have like the more recent refurb stamp, like the AN ANAD. So it has its somewhat original finish, and it's like a as matching as it can be slide and frame, with a few few cold parts here and there. But it's it's a beautiful one. Yeah, I saw the pictures. Beautiful. Mine has a, a, a US and S uh, frame, which are you know pretty hard to find, but it's a non-matching slide, and mine's been been refurbished. Um, so the the frame on my CMP 1911 is is I was very happy when I found out what it was. I just wish it would have had a matching slide because then it would be a you know super collectible gun basically. Nice. Um, but does yours shoot amazing? Because I think that is my best shooting Milsar handgun ever. Probably it, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I was surprised how much I liked it. I compared it to like my modern 1911, and I almost liked it more than my modern one. Yeah, the only downside is the old GI sights, but as far as like trigger goes and like just the way it feels in the hand, and it, it, man, that is a fantastic gun. I was super surprised by how much I like shooting it. Yeah, I was like, I figured it'd That's be That's why like, it's yeah, stuck around okay. so long. Yeah, I'm like, it'll be okay, but man, I was like, oh, I like this way more than I expected. I'm jealous one day. Gotta move to a free state, Tom. <laughs> All right. That covers our mishaps and mistakes. So before we get to our bad luck and misfortune, it's time to roll out some trivia. All right. So the way it works is I'm going to ask you fellas five questions. And since I keep Kelly in the dark, too, he's going to you guys will both work in tandem and answer the questions. There's nothing super hard here. It's just a, a way to share some information with the listeners. And today's topic is another M word. So we have mishaps, mistakes, misfortune. And now we're going to touch a little on Milsurp myths. And there's more and more myths popping up all the time. So we might do a show just on myths in the future. So for now, here's some myth trivia. Question one. There's been a myth going around for decades that some Japanese soldiers would toss aside their dust covers because the rattle would give away their positions. A myth just as bad as the M1 ping. And this rumor probably started back when the Japanese dust cover was installed first on this model, Arasaka. So what Arasaka was the first to have a dust cover? I feel like I should know this. I'm going to say it was the Type 35, but it could be the 38. Yeah, it's one of those two. <laughs> Improvement from the 30. So it'll be the 35 or 38. It is the 35. That's the one that had the dust cover that's like the Siamese Mauser cover. Oh, that's right. And they actually sent this one to to the Siamese to see if they wanted to use it. And they said yes. And and the Type 38 one is similar to the 99 one, but longer. So you cannot put the the 38 on the 99. But you could put the 99 one on the 38. It's just a little shorter. All right. Question two. Hey, Tom here. I bumbled through that question, so I just cut it out. Sorry. Oops. Question three. It's hard for me to think about Millsorp myths and not think about the low serial number Springfield 1903 rifles that are said to be brittle and might blow up if fired, even by the CMP, though. And even though Springfield found a fix for this with their double heat treatment, they moved on to a whole other thing shortly after when they started making receivers and bolts with this. Marked as NS. 
uh, nickel steel, isn't it? That is correct. Nickel steel. So to reiterate here, they say the ones to avoid are the, the Springfield under 800,000 and the Rock Islands under 285,000. But they started the nickel steel at Springfield uh, serial 1,275. So less than half a million later, they were already done with that double heat treatment. And CMP does say they recommend not firing any low number receiver ever, more than once. But everyone I know shoots them. So. Yeah, they're probably fine. Okay. Number four. Not a Millsurp question per se, but a bit of a Millsurp adjacent history here. Well, not a Millsurp question at all. Three days after the bombing of Hiroshima, when it was clear that the Japanese would not surrender, the B-29 Enola Gay that dropped the first bomb went ahead and scouted the weather at a second site and gave the green light to go ahead and bomb this city which houses and shares its name with one of Japan's largest weapon arsenals. But the weather worsened at the last minute and the drop was aborted. So they got lucky. Mm -hmm. So just basically pick a Japanese type 99 arsenal. Nagoya. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess Nagoya, that sounds right. Kokura. (laughs) Damn it. There's so many to choose from. So, yeah, the, the B-29 was called the Boxcar. He set off for Kokura, and they got delayed in their rendezvous or something, and then the weather got worse, and then they went to Nagasaki, and they said something about if Nagasaki failed, they were going to just dump it in the ocean. I guess they had a... <laughs> I guess it was armed. Okay, question five. This type and model rifle, produced from 1898 to 1919, was fitted with a unique side-mounted bayonet design, that the designer said was needed because the conventional way to mount the bayonet that most guns at the time used could be too easily removed by an enemy and used against them. Oh, that's uh, the silly Italian one, the Carcano TS. That is the Carcano M91 TS. The silly sideways latch. Yeah, so they said that in hand-to-hand combat, the enemy can reach over and press the button and remove the bayonet. <laughs> yeah okay I mean I guess technically yes but alright that was it good job guys I think we got them all uh, maybe one I had to say it's alright <laughs> alright so misfortunes so I said mishaps were unlucky accidents mistakes as thinking and doing the wrong thing when you thought it was the right thing and now misfortune to me is just plain bad luck so it could be something as small as missing out on a good deal or something as large as having your ideas stolen and then not getting paid what you deserved. And then they give you a contract to make rear sights instead. And uh, that's my Paul Mauser misfortune. <laughs> feel bad for him. But uh, in my world, most of my Millsurp misfortunes are just deals that I, are the ones I missed out on or just bad ones I made. So I'm going to call this part no more drunk bidding. So I... Uh... Yep, been there a time or two. <laughs> so I was showing a friend... At a retirement party one day, I was having a couple of drinks with them, and I'm showing them how to bid on proxy bid. And I was just going through, and I'm saying, oh, look, if you see this one here, you put a bid like this. And then, and I just started putting bids in as I'm showing him and the other people with this. But I'm putting in low bids, and I, I do that sometimes to keep it in my list, you know? Like, it's better than my watch list. It's a little final list. But I put a low bid. Unfortunately, this particular auction, the, the, the 
percentage was like 28%. So not a lot of people were bidding. And when I woke up, I was leading on nine different rifles. Oh, man. <laughs> so needless to say, it was a little panic set in. I'm like, oh, shit. And it was one of those very long all-day auctions. So I kept checking back to see if I won anything. And I did win three rifles. <laughs> this is all on one bid the night before. But uh, I won a, a Swedish 96, a Kropacek, and a Brazilian 0834. Hey, at least you got some cool ones out of it. Yeah. So it was better than what I was. Some of the bids were on things I didn't even want, I realized. So I got lucky. Yeah. You just got to gotta bid amounts that you can't be upset that you won. I've, I've done that with several guns. If you're like, well, if I win it for that amount, I can't be upset. I don't need to buy this right now. But if I win it, I'm yeah. not going to be mad about it. And then I guess, let's see, one other unfortunate misfortune that I've had is I, I have the worst luck with Carcanos, I swear. I got a Carcano 1891 long rifle at a gun show. This is back in like 2017 or something like that. Everything looked fine. It was a pretty good rifle. It's a 1918 Roma, a little less common. Decent shape. I took it out, I shot it, shot fine. It was a pretty light shooting rifle, actually. It was really pleasant. And then a few weeks later, I take the whole thing apart to like give it a good thorough cleaning. And like as I take it apart, I get it all the way down to like the basically just a receiver. And I'm messing with it, and the barrel unscrews in my hands. So it was not tight whatsoever. Oh. So I'm very surprised it did not actually like blow up when I shot it. So now that one is red-tagged in my collection. It will never be shot again unless somebody re- tightens down the barrel or gets a replacement barrel or something. So that was just bad luck. So I need, a, I need another Carcano I can actually shoot. So I bought a, one, of the, one from DK Firearms, just one of the... You know, just the EW Arms imports. I got it. I shoot it. It's fine. Whatever. I end up selling it because it's not a World War One gun. I want a World War One dated one. And like as I'm showing it to my friend, he's just like holding it and just hear a little like twing, and the clip that holds the little clip on the front of the barrel band that holds that top handguard on just popped off. <laughs> it just broke. I'm just like, well, shit. <laughs> I dropped the price by like thirty bucks and super glued it back on for him, and he still bought it. <laughs> It was slowly like working its way to pop off for like years. Like right, right when I'm showing it to him. Come on. Did you ever do this? You go to a gun show, you look at one and you, and you say like, Oh wait, let me look this one up. See if I need it. See how much it goes for and be and gone for like five minutes. Come back. It's gone. Yep. Oh my gosh. There was a gorgeous French Ruby that had like the French acceptance marks on the bottom and everything. It was like matching frame and slide and magazine. I was really thinking about that because I already have one, but mine's not marked. I'm like, I don't really need it. I don't need to spend the money. I'm like, eh, I guess I could like sell mine and like recoup most of the money. So I go to the ATM to get cash and I had been gone from the table for like 20 minutes, come back and it's gone. It's like, oh, come on. Who's out? Who else is out here buying French rubies? I was looking at a M95 Bulgarian. And I happen to have two Bulgarian M95, so I guess that makes me a Bulgarian collector. But uh, um, I have the different contracts, so I saw another one, and I wanted to make sure it was a different contract. I don't want to get the same, you know, there's five or six different ones. So I go to my phone really quick, and I look it up, and I'm, granted, I'm looking at a Belgian 8936 a little bit that was sitting here. But I'm looking up my phone, and I go, ooh, I need that one. And I turn around, and it's just the space where it was. 
It wasn't even like someone bought it and said, I'll come get it later and it's sold. No, it was gone completely. And it was 300 bucks. I should have just bought it. Yep, just got to jump on it. Can't hesitate. I don't know how much you guys do any other auctions. Like, I, you know, like Gunbroken and uh, Gumboards, you know, have a lot of photos. But I've actually had a couple of misfortunes purchasing from an auction where they only have like one or two photos and they're blurry. And I think I see something. So I take a chance and I'm like, wait, that looks like I, there was a Gewehr 98 and I thought the bolt was matching, even though it said it wasn't. But a lot of things were wrong in the ad, so I I rolled the dice. It was not matching. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a Gavari 8805, um, it, I wanted one that wasn't all turked up, you know, that, how they get, even the sights are in Farsi when they change them. So I was looking for one with original sights, and I thought I saw one, and it was a blurry photo. I was like, that's, a, that's English. And then I uh, got it. Nope, very, very turked. It was an S mark, though, at least. Oh, I had something like that with my Roth Krunka nineteen oh seven or Steyer Roth. I got it for a really good deal, so I was like, I was like, pretty like, I was like rushing the process, like, oh, I gotta get this, I gotta get this. It was on Gunbroker. And I'm like checking all the pictures, make sure everything looks fine, and like the picture, the pistol grip, like the bottom of it was like cut off in the picture. I don't think the guy did this intentionally because he's like a really old dude, so he just took bad pictures. <laughs> but when I got it, the I realized I it looked fine and everything. I looked at it and then like. A few days later, I looked at it and I'm like, wait, something's not right. And I looked at pictures online to compare, and I realized the lanyard loop on the bottom of the grip had been ground off. Oh. But it doesn't affect it or anything, but like, and you couldn't see in the picture, and right. I just didn't realize it until. It's not like, like you could put that days. on either. Yeah, a few <laughs> days later, I'm like, wait a second. This looks different. Why, what's different about it? So that one stung a little, but I got, like, I got such a good deal on it, I can't really complain too much. I um, bought a Moss 36 once from an auction that had like 50 photos, but there was a crack that somehow eluded all 50 photos in the auction. Mm, interesting. <laughs> like I was, Funny how that happened. Yeah, I went back and looked, and I was like, that's odd that they took these angles. So I had a debate if it was bad enough to return it. I'm not good with that. All right, and the last thing here I had was uh, I was going to ask you guys if you had a UPS duffel cut, but we uh, did talk about that. I haven't had any damaged guns, but I have had like spilled ammo and stuff like that in the box. Oh, I lost the, they lost a the bayonet one time too. I bought a rifle that came with a bayonet and I, the bayonet did not have a scabbard. So it must've been <laughs> bouncing around and they're cutting itself free. <laughs> Poked right out. <laughs> I had one rifle that I don't know how it made it to me safely. It was a, um, a Swiss, it was a 1898, the one with like the external magazine. Um, oh, the 89s? Yeah, yes, excuse me, the 89, that's right. And it was, uh, I bought it from Century Arms. And the, the box was like soaking wet and it was dirty. So I, the only thing I can think is maybe it like got caught, it was wet and got caught in a conveyor belt that just kind of like, tore it to pieces but it had a big hole out of the side of it like i could literally see the bolt knob of the of the gun like when i uh -huh. when i when i made it home and um you know my heart just sank i was like this thing is gonna be broken all to pieces that box was completely trashed but the gun luckily survived besides a very minor scratch on the metal of the bolt knob i was very lucky with that one i mean you... oh, i meant to oh go ahead no, i was gonna say a wet box is is almost useless yep, yep. 
They they just it turn. There's no protection whatsoever once it gets wet. <laughs> I meant to ask this earlier in one of the like mishap sections or misfortunes, but what's since you're you're kind of the guy that does all the unboxings and you get like a lot of the like the deals and stuff like that. What's the worst thing you've ever gotten that you weren't expecting to be terrible? Hmm. Well, I try to keep low expectations so that way, you know, I'm not super disappointed when when it comes in below my expectations. But um, I was very saddened with my um, my uh, M91 Carcano that I got from RTI just because the bore is so shot out, like, it, you know, it keyholes. All I ask from a gun is that I can put rounds on paper, basically, and that they don't keyhole, and that one keyholes, and I was really saddened by that one but the worst condition thing i've ever like pulled out of a box was definitely the number four infield from hunter's lodge that was covered in tar Uh, that 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 was the most bastardized like gun i've ever put my hands on like yeah at least you got something everyone thought you wouldn't even get anything yeah well you know i still haven't finished restoring that one yet it's a it's an ongoing project it's about ready to put back together um i have all the parts now uh, so we will get that one to the range eventually, but it was missing so many parts. And I think what happened is that one, that was an old gun, uh, probably from Springfield's borders. And it had been sitting around in, you know, various parts dealers for years and had parts harvested off of it and stuff. Everything of value was sold separately, basically. And it was just a shell of a gun anyway. Now what, whatever it encountered in its past that, that caused it to be literally covered in tarts, not Cosmoline, it's tar. <laughs> and, the uh, buttstock to be sanded, the the grip sanded off of it, and the bottom part of the, the actual butt under where the plate would be, the plate's missing, and all that wood is, like, pounded flat, like someone used it to hammer in, like, uh, fence posts or something. Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. That, that, that rifle saw some shit, though, for real. You know, that's, that's part of the history. So if it's not $5,000 and it's cheap, it's it's a good thing to have, even though it's covered in tar and hammered fence posts, you know? I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, yeah, it's horribly covered. <laughs> yeah, this is, that, that's, like, the, the worst thing I ever got was probably just one of the RTI ones where there were dead bugs inside. Did you ever get one of those? Yeah, a couple. The the For some reason, I've only had them in infield. So the, num- the number four that I got from RTI and the number one that I got from RTI both had bugs on the inside. And I've got a really good look at those bugs because they were the same kind of bugs. I went back to my old video to watch the other one. I was like, those are the same kind of bugs. And I, th- I think they're bed bugs. They look like bed bugs. So oh, no. I, I don't know. But that's what, but it was I all agree. just They're all nothing, dead, thankfully. Nothing in there was alive. But it looked like it was there was a colony of bed bugs like living inside the action. Yeah, I agree. The, the, the bodies look like freaking like almost ticks. But bed, oh, it's gross. So, yeah, that was the grossest. But. That that was I bought a, an RTI Enfield from someone who bought it from RTI, and he didn't want it, and it was filthy, and I was like, I'll take it. And I didn't know Enfields at the time, and boy, cleaning an RTI Enfield, you have to take apart every single piece. You know, I learned Enfield that day. I'm not once I see bugs, I'm not leaving any spot unchecked. Yeah, anything you get from them needs to be thoroughly taken down and cleaned. The the nicest thing I ever received from RTI though was my uh, M1 carbine. That, that was that's really like the jewel of things that I've got from RTI. It was only slightly dirty. I mean, it was still dirty, but it didn't have any like serious mold or anything like some of them have. Nothing was broken, and it's a fantastic shooter. I love that gun. 
Yeah, I've heard those were actually pretty nice ones to get. Right. The only time I've ever heard someone say there was recommended to get was an M1 carbine and the ammunition. Some of the ammo is good. They have. Uh, otherwise, people say roll. You could roll the dice, or it's always you know set in a way of you might get garbage. Yeah, I always try to make it a point that if I'm ever doing an RTI video, that I make it very clear that I'm not going out there like recommending that people order from RTI. But I'm like, but if you are going to order from RTI, like you know, expect this kind of thing, and you know, try, you know, try to let them know. Yeah, and and the price has been pretty good. Like they've had 99 flash sales for Carcanos, and they've had good prices. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't hesitate to buy something on sale from them again, especially uh, I've really been um, uh, eyeing the the infields, the P14s. Uh, I, oh, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't have a P14, and they're really the only people out there that have like a surplus, you know, P14 for sale. I mean, you can get one on the, you know, the collector market. You get a nice one probably for probably not that much more than you'd pay on RTI, but if those ever go on sale for like a significant discount, I'll probably snag one of those just to see what I get. Yeah, those yeah, are nice. Serious. And there's plenty of parts out there. Like, if you need stocks and everything, you can still find those. All right. I think we did our mishaps, our mistakes, and our misfortunes. And I embarrassed myself enough with all the times I've talked about dropping my rifles and jamming them with screwdrivers. So, <laughs> hopefully people listening can learn a thing or two from our mistakes and at least go get the right screwdriver. And I'd like to thank our guest, Readiness Reviews, here. Thank you so much for coming on, bud. Thanks for having me, guys. I've truly enjoyed it. If you need another podcast guest in the future for some other topic or something, I'd be happy to come on. All right. Yeah. We've enjoyed chatting with you. And uh, once again, everyone, check out the YouTube channel. You know what? You can email me at millsurphq at gmail.com. You can ask us questions, submit some show ideas. If you want to come on, play trivia, whatever. That's how we got a lot of our questions. And I think that's it. It was an honor. Thanks for playing, guys. Appreciate it. Peace. See ya. All right. Cool.